as he lives. What a great song. I, uh, years ago, uh, was introduced to a song that in the chorus it says, Just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I, I want you to understand this, that this life on this earth, the Bible says, is just a vapor. It appears for a little while, then it vanisheth away. And I don't get me wrong, I think God lets us enjoy things of life. But it's short. We don't have a whole lot of time on this earth. Whatever time we have, we need to be redeeming it. We need to make use of it. Make sure that we are ready to spend eternity in heaven. And I would tell you this, I would plead with you in this area, that if you're sitting here today and you say, Oh, I don't know if I believe all that, Pastor. Can I tell you this? It is true. It is true. It's as true as sure as I'm standing here today. I have experienced the salvation of the Lord. Many of you that are sitting here today can give testimony to that fact. The change that He brings into our life. There's such a truth to what He has for us in this book. And I would encourage you today, if you say, well, I don't know if I have trusted Christ as my Savior, I would urge you, get it done today. Get it done today. Life is too short. And eternity is too long to take a chance on where you're going to spend eternity. According to John chapter number 3, those that do not believe, the Bible says, are condemned already. I'm not trying to rain on your parade today, but I would say this, that you don't have to do anything to go to hell. Not one thing. We are born, the Bible says, in sin. We have a sinful nature. Until we reach an age of understanding what's right and what's wrong and to be able to be able to make a choice between trusting Christ and what He's done for us on Calvary, until we reach that point of understanding, God tells us that there is an innocence found in us. And so those that would die an infant death would go to heaven, even though uh, they have not gotten to a place where they could trust Him as their Savior because there was an innocence He found there. But if we've reached an age of what we call accountability, understanding that we're sinners, understanding there's a price for our sin, understanding that the only way we're going to be able to pay that price is to let Christ pay it for us, once we get to the age where we can recognize that, we are held responsible for our decision. I, if I could make the decision for you, I would do it. If I could say, I, I want so-and-so to be saved, Father, I, I want you to save them. I would do it, but He allows every person to make their own choice. He doesn't force anybody, but He offers it to everybody. He is not willing, the Bible says, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Christ didn't come to, to, to reign on your parade or to make your life miserable. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Those that were lost in condemnation of sin, He came to bring salvation to them, to bring redemption to them. To be able to snatch them from the from the, the claws of Satan and the and the the imminent the imminent punishment for their sin. 
And I, I'm not saying this to be sound like I'm harsh to you today. I'm here to try to tell you that's how much God loved you. That according to Romans chapter number 5, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And I'll be real frank with you. I, I love you guys. I, 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 y'all are a church family to me. And I love everybody here. But I don't know of any one of you that I would be willing to send my son to his death, to go through what our Savior went through, to try to save you. But the Lord loved you that much. That's how much God loved you. He didn't come, he didn't come to bring condemnation. He came to rescue you from it. We're condemned because of our own choices. We're condemned because of the fact we are sinners. Christ came to save each and every one of us. And He wants nothing more than for you to trust Him as your Savior today. I don't care how old or how young you are. I know that sometimes when you're young, you think, boy, I've got my whole life. I'll deal with that later, Pastor. I'll deal with that later in life. Folks, I'll tell you this, and I'm not trying to scare you into salvation. If I could, I would. But I will tell you this. We are not guaranteed another breath. We're not guaranteed another day. I was talking to our neighbor on the other side of the parsonage the other day. He's got a few teen, a couple teenage boys, and uh, I think it was, I think it was last Monday or Tuesday. We met out in the yard. We were talking for a little bit. He's talking about how he's getting on to his boys for driving too fast down the road, and we got on that topic and that conversation. He said, "Yeah, one of my one of my son's best friends." was killed in a car accident here in Jefferson County last week. He was driving too fast. Ran off the road and killed almost instantly. And I got to talking to my neighbor and I said, you know, it shows that we just don't have a guarantee of another day, do we? That kid woke up that morning. I told him this. We were actually talking about this. I said, you know, when he woke up that morning, he got dressed and got ready to go to work that morning. I guarantee you he didn't stop to think that today might be my last day on this earth. But it was. The chances are very strong the young man was not saved. And as a pastor, I hear things like that and I think, Lord, help us not to have anyone come and sit in the pews of Keith Heights Baptist Church and leave not having at least had the opportunity to trust Christ as their Savior. Because we don't have the guarantee of another day. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we lose, we lose the importance of it. We grow calloused to it. We go through life and... Life throws a lot of stuff at us. We begin to think about a lot of other things. And whether or not our neighbor or a friend of our neighbor is saved or not becomes something we don't give a whole lot of thought to. I told him the other day, I said, that's why it's so vitally important that we know where we're going when we die. Oh, that we would have the importance of the urgency of the day. And we would understand this. I 
our message is not on salvation this morning, but I wanted to take a moment because I don't want another service in this church to go by or any service to go by where somebody comes and does not know how to be saved. Somebody comes and and doesn't have the opportunity or the choice to make. Can I tell you, if you're sitting here today and you have not made that choice, you're flirting with disaster. And I say that with a heart of compassion to you, not, not being critical of you, but a heart that is broken. Because I don't want to see anybody have to die and go to hell. I want to make sure everybody knows how to go to heaven. That they've been given that opportunity. That they would make that choice. And by the way, there's only two choices. To trust Christ as your Savior and go to heaven. Or to reject what God has to offer you and go to hell. Those are the only two. There is no in-between. It's one or the other. And I want to encourage you in this. If you're not saved today, please, please, please don't wait another day. Don't wait another hour. Put your faith in the Lord today. Trust Him today. Just let Him know that you're wanting to to take Him at His Word, what He said He would do for you. And let Him save you today. Let's take our Bibles, if you will, and uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is writing the church at Thessalonica because they, they were confused. Some, some uh, false teachers had come into their midst and began to teach them that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead had already happened, and and Paul was trying to combat some of the doctrinal error that was creeping in. <coughs> as he got to the end of his letter, as he did so often with many of his letters, he gives a salutation of several things. I want us, if you will, to look at verse number 25, and our message is based on a verse that only has four words in it. As he writes, brethren, pray for us. And it's hard to take a verse like that out of context because it's fairly direct. Paul was pleading for those that knew how to pray and to get a hold of God to pray on their behalf, to pray for God's blessing, for God's protection, for God's prospering of their work. I began to think of this a number of years ago. I was preaching a series on prayer. I uh, read some books that had just stirred my heart and caused me to look at my own prayer life and how how uh, how frail it seemed to be, how how hollow my praying used to be. And I thought, Lord, I need some I need some fervency in my prayer life. I need something that is of substance there. And I began to look at some things. And as I came to this thing of, of prayer, I I was so convicted that we don't pray the way that we ought to. It's interesting to me that the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry, when He got ready to begin His three and a half years or so of of ministry, He 
went around and he, he invited 12 men to follow him. We refer to them as the disciples. These were men who were willing to follow the Lord through thick and thin. They had seen a lot of miracles. They would also seen a lot of people who were angry at the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been through uh, tempests. They had seen uh, the, the sick healed. They had seen uh, those that were possessed of devils cast out and God to do great miracles. And out of all the things that the Lord Jesus Christ taught them in three and a half years, there's only one thing that the disciples asked Him. Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to pastor a church. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to plant churches. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to teach a Sunday school class or run a bus route. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. I think that we think so little in the day that we live, we think so little of prayer when the Bible puts such a great, great emphasis of it. A number of years ago, an evangelist by the name of Charles Finney went around America, and there's some people criticize some of his work, but out of the folks that were preaching during that time of great revival, most of the, the great preachers of that day, which would have included men like D.L. Moody and some of those great men of, of, that, of that time period, as they would preach and they would see great revivals and they would see people trust Christ as their Savior, in the years that followed, they found out that about only 30%, between 25 and 30%, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and go with the 30%, but they found out that only about 30% of those that made a profession of faith in those meetings remained faithful and grew in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it came to Charles Finney, they began to look at the revivals that he had preached and those that had gotten saved in his ministry. They found out that over 80% of those that trusted Christ as their Savior in those revival meetings remained faithful and began to go to the churches. And in fact, uh, many of the churches in the Bible built uh, can trace their roots back to a revival of Charles Finney. Charles Finney, when he began his ministry, was not much of a preacher. In fact, he, he was. Uh, there was a fellow uh, that uh, saw him early on in his ministry and thought he was uh, moderate at best as far as a preacher. But he came in touch with a fellow by the name of um, uh, 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 Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash was a Congregationalist preacher. And over a period of time, he had had some problems with his eyes, and he got a, an infection in them one time that caused him to uh, be light-sensitive, and he had to go into a darkened room for a number of months. He could not see anything with any kind of light at all. In fact, they had to pass his food to him underneath the door because even opening the door would oftentimes create excruciating discomfort for him. It was during those months that he was in that condition that the Lord transformed his prayer life. According to his testimony, he would tell you that he had learned to pray during that time. Daniel Nash went to one of the early meetings of Charles Finney. As he walked in and he heard Brother Finney preach, he didn't think there was much, uh, much to be said of Brother Finney's preaching, and he was burdened for him. And so he went to Brother Finney after the meeting and he said, 
Brother, would you tell me your schedule? I'd like to be able to go ahead of you and begin to pray for the meetings. So Brother Finney began to give him his schedule, and Daniel Nash, along with another young man by the name of Abel Clary, would oftentimes travel together. They would go a week or two or sometimes three weeks ahead of a revival that Charles Finney was going to preach, and they would rent a room in the same town, sometimes in the back of a house or sometimes in a cellar. And they would give themselves to praying. And when I say give themselves to praying, in the biography of Daniel Nash that I've read a number of times now in my life, there were times where they would have folks in the evening time come into his room and lift him to his bed because he had exhausted himself in prayer. Daniel Nash was known to walk into the meeting of the service of Charles Finney on the first night or the second night, sometimes maybe even the third night. He would walk into the meeting and look around for a few moments, and he would say, he's not here. He would turn and go back to his prayer closet and begin praying again, sometimes 16, 18 hours out of the day. One lady, as Brother Finney came to town, approached him and said, Sir, do you know a man by the name of Daniel Nash? And he said, Yes, ma'am, I do. She said, Well, he has rented a room from me and he's been locked in there for days with no food and no water. And she said, He's making the most horrible noises in there, groanings and sounds. It sounds like he's in distress. I wish you'd come check on him. Brother Finney said, You let him alone. He's wrestling in prayer. Daniel Nash would finally walk into those revival services on one of the nights and he would say, he's here. And he'd turn and go back to his prayer closet. Brother Finney, his own testimony, would say, without exception, I never knew him to be mistaken. For on that very night, the windows of heaven would open and God's power would pour out upon that meeting. Men would come and seek salvation. In Rochester, New York, in a meeting that was supposed to last a week, it ended up lasting for four weeks. It's over 100,000 people made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ under Brother Finney's preaching. For seven years, Daniel Nash traveled. And he would go before Brother Finney and he would pray. And after seven years, Daniel Nash passed away. God took him home. Brother Fenny preached on the revival trail for three months, longer than after Brother Nash passed away. And after the third month, he made the comment, the revivals are over. And he took a pastorate and pastored the rest of his years in Oberlin. The power of prayer, folks. Somebody said it this way, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. I have been guilty myself of sometimes telling someone who's going through a difficult time, well, brother or sister, I'll be praying for you. I wish I could do more. Can I submit to you today that there is nothing more that we can do than pray for them until we have prayed for them. For prayer is the thing that is the most powerful thing to turn God's hand to work in our lives. 
Why God has chosen to tie His work to our praying oftentimes, I don't know, but it's what He has done. I want us to look at several things regarding our prayer life, if you will. And hopefully God will help us to stir our hearts, cause us to get to a place where we don't just pray at the dinner table, we don't just pray during our five-minute devotional time. But we have a time where we are in seasons of prayer with God throughout the day. We're literally at any moment of time as we go through our day, we're able to go into a time of prayer with Him. John Wesley made this statement. He said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Charles Spurgeon said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Thomas Hooker, that Puritan writer, said this, Prayer is my chief work, and it is by means of it that I carry on the rest. Can I urge us today that we ought to make prayer our chief work? It ought to be that which is paramount in our lives. It ought to be that which we give great attention to and great fervency to. That we give great soberness of mind to. And it's not something that is a a, a spectacle or something that we just, uh, as a novelty, do out of obligation. But something that we thrive in. Something that our hearts long for. Look with me, if you will, in Romans chapter number 12. (coughs) Romans chapter number 12. Paul, once again, is writing, and he writes to the Christians in Rome. In verse 12 of chapter 12, he says, Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation. I want you to notice this. Continuing instant in prayer. Continuing instant in prayer. That prayer is on the tip of our lips at any given moment of time. When Charles Spurgeon went out with an outing with his friends, It was said often of him that we never knew when he was speaking to us and when he was speaking to God. For he would pass so seamlessly between conversation with us and conversation with God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could have such a relationship with God that throughout the day we move seamlessly into conversation with Him. That we're we're continuing instant in prayer that on the edge of our thoughts all the time is that we want God to be involved in all aspects of our life. In Proverbs chapter 3, if I ever sign a Bible, which I don't sign a lot of Bibles, but if I ever do or if I ever sign a card, I write these verses down. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, which to me are some of the greatest verses to a Christian's life. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. To make God an integral part of our day, the Christian life is, is all about doing the will of God and to, to follow His Word and to spread the Gospel to a lost and a dying world. And, and this thing ought to be natural for us to live the Christian life. It ought to be natural for us to talk to somebody about the Gospel message. It ought not be something that we have to drum up. It ought to be natural for us to live a life of godliness and holiness. It ought not be something that we have to labor at. It ought to be natural for us to enter into prayer, to come into the throne room of God, begin to say, Lord, I need to talk with You for a little bit. 
I want you to be a part of this part of my life, or I have a need, or this person over here is needing some, some help from you. When was the last time we spent more than five minutes praying for the soul of someone we knew was lost? To give ourselves to praying. Bible tells us, and Paul said this, you need to continue, continuing instant in prayer. It needs to be the normal response. It needs to be that which is all natural to a Christian. There are some things when people get saved that I've watched over the years that they just begin doing. Nobody told them to do it. They just started to do it. There's some things that when you get saved, you just know. God puts it in your heart. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He helps you to understand some things. He helps you to see some things. And one of the things that ought to become natural and more natural as we go along in the Christian life is this thing of pray. This thing of pray. I've been in the presence of people who in the middle of our conversation, without even saying let's pray or anything, they just begin to pray. Lord, bless this situation. I was with Brother Randy Casey a number of years ago and was talking with him about something. Right in the middle of the conversation, he just starts praying. Brother Mike Snyder, the preacher that pastors the church where I used to pastor down in Florida, I was down there on Wednesday night they began to read their prayer list. They have a prayer list they publish on Wednesday nights. And they began to read it. And he said, now, we need to be in prayer for Brother So-and-So. Now, Lord, bless this person. Bless, bless Brother So-and-So. And then, and then we need to be praying for this. And, and immediately he would go in and out of prayer as he's reading the prayer list. As he would announce the next prayer request and then begin praying immediately for them. I thought, oh, that we could learn to be instant in prayer. To learn to live our lives in prayer. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. Second Corinthians chapter number 1. We begin reading in verse number 8. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He says, For we would not... Brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength in so much that we despaired even of life? And I want you to understand the condition Paul's in at this point. Paul was at the place where they were in so much oppression, they were in so much affliction, that Paul said, this great Christian, said, we despaired even of life. If God would have taken him, Paul would have rejoiced at that moment. Because even life was difficult, too difficult to even live. He says, but we had the sentence of death on ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raised the dead, raised the dead, who delivered us from a great, uh, so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust, that He will yet deliver us, yet also, notice this, <coughs> helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. <coughs> we need to not only be instant in prayer, but we need to help 
one another in prayer. Paul said we're at this place where we're, we're, we're at the point of, of just being desperate. We, we, we're, we're weary of life even because of the afflictions that we're in. He said, I pray that you, I ask that you would help us. Help us by praying. Help us in prayer. I think it's important that when a brother or sister is going through the valley, that you and I take them up in fervent prayer. Every once in a while I'll get a phone call. Miss Sandy or Brother Mark or one of the other folks in the church will say, Pastor, we've got a prayer request. Oh, that when we hang that phone up, we would find the time to fall on our faces and say, Lord, bless this need. And to give some fervency to it. I know this, that if I were in that situation that that person was in, I would want everybody that knew how to pray to get a hold of God and on my behalf be praying. Paul, weary of life. The afflictions were too great. He said, help us. Help us together in prayer. I want you to look also, if you will, in Acts chapter number 12. Acts chapter 12 and verse number 5. Acts chapter 12 and verse number 5. Peter therefore was kept in prison. I want you to notice what's said here, but prayer was made, notice these words, without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Here's Peter who's in prison, not for any wrongdoing, but for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He knows that the end will be near if God doesn't intervene. The Bible says that this church, that they begin to make prayer without ceasing. You want to see the mighty hand of God work? Get a church that knows how to pray. To begin praying without ceasing for a burden that is on their heart. When Herod, look in verse number 6, and when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off of his hands. The angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did, and he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel. He thought, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and the second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth into the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out, passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many people, where many were gathered together. And I want you to see this, praying.
They're praying through the night. I don't know how late this was, but it was late enough for for Peter to be asleep. And while Peter was sleeping, the church was praying. Oh, that we would learn to have fervency in our prayers. That if there is a burden that is that great to our hearts, that we don't just pray five or ten minutes for it and then blame God for not answering that prayer. But that there would be fervency in our praying. James chapter 5 makes mention of this, that the prayer of faith and the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Luke chapter number 19. Luke refers to the fact that Christ said His house should be a house for prayer. A fellow by the name of S.D. Gordon made this statement years ago. He said, Prayer wonderfully clears the vision, steadies the nerves, defines our duty, stiffens the purpose, and sweetens and strengthens the Spirit. Samuel Chadwick said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 25. Paul writes four words. It doesn't seem like much. In fact, as you read through this letter, you think it's just a, it's just a small statement that Paul made. But oh, the might and the power in it. He says in verse number 25, Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. We're living in a day where we are so consumed. We are so, let me use this word, distracted by the affairs of this life that we have lost many, many of the folks in the Christian circles that we we know of today. We have lost many of them from this thing of fervent praying. From this idea of praying and laboring in prayer. To be instant in prayer. To help one another by prayer. To pray continually. To pray fervently. I would say this. When we come to the Lord in prayer one of two things is going to happen. God's going to either show us some things in our life that is not right, that we need to get right, that are hindering our prayer life, or we will already know and need to get them right. 
Because one of the things that we know about prayer is that when it comes to the working of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can grieve Him and we can quench Him. May God help us to pray with an upright heart. With a sense of urgency. I hope we don't ever say ever again in our lives, Brother, I'm praying for you. I wish I could do more. Because the truth of the matter is this, the greatest thing that someone can do for me and the greatest thing that someone can do for you is to pray for you. Let's stand together, shall we? Churches in this world today need a revival of, his, of their people that know how to pray.